The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I've always said that no one has been the greater beneficiary of this podcast than I have. And by that, I mean, I've been profoundly enriched by every single conversation I've had with my over 80 guests in ways that I don't think I ever could have imagined a few years ago when I launched it. But of course, I didn't start this podcast for me. I did it for you in hopes that you would be the ones elevated and informed by the brilliant and inspiring people I hope to interview. And it's you I always have in mind when I change the direction of a conversation to probe into a topic a little deeper and really every time I plan out the specific questions I wanna ask every guest. And in the case of this new episode, it was also with you in mind that I quickly tossed aside most of my intended questions and had a truly organic conversation with world-renowned researcher and New York Times bestselling author, Marcus Buckingham. You all know Marcus is the author of the classic leadership book, First Break All the Rules, along with many other bestsellers, including Nine Lives About Work. And you likely know that he's a data-driven researcher at heart who left his market gallop and is now head of people and performance research at the ADP Institute. And it's because Marcus has leaned so much in the direction of quantifying and statistically proving what leadership practices make the most impact that the conversation you're about to hear is really so stunning. All within a period of an hour, we talked about how most of us don't really know the real truth about what we love and what engages us and makes us thrive in life. We discussed the underappreciated fact that our personal weirdness is what actually makes us unique, each of us, and how our workplaces, jobs, and schools too often focus on making us conform. The topic of employee engagement came up and whether it still matters in the post-COVID workplace. And perhaps most importantly, we discussed his new book, Love and Work, a title that inherently conveys Marcus's belief that what's long been missing in leadership are the very things we focus on here every episode. Care, respect, being made to feel seen, safe, and valued. Heart and love are the focuses of our conversation, and all the pieces add up to extraordinary insight. You're gonna be able to, and want to, apply immediately. I'm very excited to share it with you and to introduce you to Marcus Buckingham. Thanks, Mark. Really happy to be here. Well, it's an honor for me to be with you, to be honest with you. So I'll get that right out of the way. I'm familiar with your work, and it wasn't very long into reading your new one that I thought, this is interesting. Like, at the very beginning, you invite us to get to know you better. It's a very personal book. And then you go on to share a lot of details about your life that I didn't expect to read. Mm. And that isn't like the data facts filled book that we've come to expect from you. And I know you're really an intentional guy and you're very deliberate in what you do. So I thought I'm going to ask him at the very beginning, tell us what influenced you to take this approach. What were you trying to convey? Well, as you know, I'm a, a psychometrician by training and I've spent most of my life trying to figure out how do you measure things about people at work that are really important, but that you can't actually count. So things like strengths, like talents, like engagement, like resilience. And most of my previous books, including the first one, First Break All the Rules, was, was data infused. Everything was about, in this case, the first one was about a, a study of really great managers and what they do differently. And undoubtedly, I'm, I'm oriented that way. I, I want to know what the data show as opposed to simply what I think, because on some level, who cares what I think? But in terms of this book, a lot of things have happened in the last three, four years for me. My dad died. Um, my marriage of 20 years ended. We were in a two-year pandemic. And during that time, you get to look in the mirror in ways that you wouldn't have done before. And some of those days were pretty scary. It's like you went down quite deep and thought about who you are and what kind of contribution you're trying to make in the world. And some days were scary. Other days were clarifying. I'm sure everyone had this feeling where some days it's like, wow, I... 
I can kind of see what sort of dent I want to make in the world. And what came out of that for me was each person's life is a story. And if I'm truly going to help people live a story that feels like theirs, a super contributive, but also authentic story, then I'll have to share some of mine because it's the only story that I can reliably report on. And while I admire the books that use an anecdote here and an anecdote there, I felt as though the best way to lead someone through their story was to lead them through mine. Mine's idiosyncratic. Mine is super privileged. Obviously, as a white male, I had many more choices. Mine was lucky. So mine is Mine isn't an story, a story to serve as an example or an exemplar in any way, but it was the most authentic and most ground level, two foot level sort of detail that I felt I could share about how you navigate through this, this crazy forest of a life. And it felt a really nice juxtaposition between the data, which you know, I run the ADP Research Institute now, so I have this global institute that is enabled to do ongoing research, which is great. But I've also had kind of an interesting life in terms of where I've gone and building a business and, and then selling the business and writing books. And so I felt like the vividness of that would help people step into the vividness of themselves. Well, I intuited all of that, to be honest with you. And so this is very confirming. I mean, I think what you're implying is that we've all had this universal experience of looking in the mirror, the pandemic, the two years that we had in isolation, and also the dark days and the sunny days and the ambiguous days. But ultimately, the question that you're asking yourself, which is interesting, because I wouldn't have expected that you would be asking it. And so I think by you asking, you know, what's the difference I'm trying to make in this world, after having already made a difference in this world, sort of opens the door for everybody else to say, it's a cool question for me to be asking. And like, I'm not entitled by it. It's something that we should all be doing. That's kind of the layout that you set up for us. Is that right? Yes. It's um, on some level, everyone's just making it up as they go along. But at the same time, although life is motion, I mean, we would talk about life is balanced, but nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Everything healthy in nature is moving. And mostly they're trying to move through the environments, whether they're a plant or a bumblebee or a, a tree in a forest or a human. You're trying to move through your environment in a way that gives you the nourishment you need to keep moving through the environment. And so for me, I've done some things, we've all done some things in our lives, and, and yet I'm still alive. And tomorrow, I've got to get up again. And so every day we're thinking about tomorrow, not that we miss the present, but every day we're thinking about what kind of contribution we can make moving forward. And so for me, it was an opportunity to take what I love and how I can contribute that more seriously, really more genuinely, authentically seriously than I ever have before. So for me, I want to spend the next 20 years really ensuring that I haven't skimmed the surface of anything. I've taken something and plumbed its depths in the hopes that that kind of deep dive into a subject, whether it's oneself or whether it's how other people can live true to themselves, that we we haven't skimmed the surface in a glib or slick way, that we've gone really deep into how do you actually contribute in life whether you're nine years old or whether you're 99 years old, how do we help make that a more intentional and more individualized experience for people? Because at the moment, clearly, we're looking at students who are on Adderall and Xanax or whether we're looking at disengaged workers. Clearly, at the moment, something is systemically wrong. And so for me, the pandemic has been a call to arms, a clarion call, if you will, to go Dude, take yourself really seriously and make sure that you're contributing everything that you possibly can. And I think in that way, this book is a start for me to do that. Now, I tend to be very planful, very organized. I read your book thoroughly and you just said something and I have to go there. First of all, two questions. One is, will you write books differently as a consequence of the two years of self-reflection and just the whole experience that you've been on? Like, is that going to influence you to write books differently going forward? Or will you revert to more of the, here's what the data says, here's the interpretation kind of a book? I think we're all changed. I think I would include myself in that. I don't think it's going to be possible for me to go back and talk intellectually or academically or conceptually about 
a subject without bringing in the reality of my own human experience or the human experience of my kids or the human experience of those I'm in relationship with. We've been all too clever by half. And some parts of life, as you know, some parts of life are countable through numbers, but an awful lot of life is, it's a spiritual experience, joy, love, meaning. These things are very difficult to quantify. And yet we all know when they're missing in our lives. We all know that if love is unexpressed in our lives, it will turn into a caustic, abrasive, acidic substance, which eats us up from the inside out. And that's very hard to count that. We can see it in terms of your physiology. We can see love unexpressed destroying people in terms of their well-being and their health. But exactly quantifying what's happening there is a difficult thing to do. And yet if we don't express that which we have inside of us in some productive way, and if we're not seen by others, our lives diminish, we get damaged. So as I've thought about things over the course of this pandemic, I can't go back to a world that is purely countable. I have to move into a world that is deeply human with all the implications of that. It's quite scary, Mark, to publish a book in which you talk about your family or you talk about your own personal feelings of you know vulnerability or error. And yet we have that. And so I don't think I can go back to something more anodyne, even if it's more classically intellectual. I don't think I want to go back there because I think where we are going to have the greatest impact on the people that we're trying to impact is if we can speak directly to all aspects of humanity. And some of those are countable, some of those are measurable, and some of them aren't. (laughs) Some of them are purely spiritual. So let's dive into that. Data can inform, data can confirm, data could refute some parts. And that's interesting. That will never not be interesting, but it's not everything. Well, you have an audience here who's shaking their head up and down because I think, I mean, over the past two years, we've sort of aligned to this ourselves. In other words, this is a big focus. And so relying on data alone is mind-driven, whereas everything else that you're describing, particularly love and the spiritual aspects, that's heart. And so I think it's harder for people to read. I know it is for me. I'm reading at least a book a week and some of them are just dry and data and they're impressive, but there's nothing inspiring about them. But it was clear to me, it was very palpable as I'm reading your book. I'm like, he's intentionally sharing some really painful, very dark experiences, but everybody else wants to know when they're reading it, like, okay, like he's admitting to this or he's acknowledging it. There's nothing in an admission, no guiltiness, Mm -hmm. but it's a, here's what's going on. Here's what I felt. This is what I've experienced. And I think the reader, while looking for information between love and work, which is the title of the book, it's also looking at, am I okay? (laughs) You know, and he's went through this and look at him, he's thriving. So I'm going to be okay. I think that kind of comes through. So well done. And I I, I do want to probe here. Mm. I believe that there's something systematically wrong, particularly in leadership. But I want to hear your view on that. When you say there's something systematically wrong, what's the system that's broken and how would you fix it? Well, I and I wrote about this in the book. During the pandemic, a lot of us as parents became sort of quasi-teachers too. And so I was talking to my daughter the other day about her work or her studying and She was asking about the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram. And I I obviously couldn't remember the difference between a rhombus (laughs) and a parallelogram. But as I was looking at it, it just suddenly struck me. I'm sure you've had this too, Mark, where sometimes suddenly, like something that's right in front of your face is like, suddenly it strikes you like a crystalline insight that you can't shake. And for me, it was like, oh my word, someone has given her such rigor and discipline around geometry. 10 years she's had of geometry various forms of it, increasing levels of complexity, increasing levels of testing around it. But someone took geometry really, really, really seriously. And she has gone through that. And good, I guess, right? Good that she has. But all the stuff that's really important for her to live a a thriving, contributive life at work, but also in all the domains of her life, the questions about who is she really? What joy does she get from certain activities? Which activities does she love? Which activities does she loathe? How does she talk about those to herself? How does she turn them into actual contribution? How does she share them with someone else without bragging? Or how does she ask them about what they love without sounding condescending or overly curious? Or how do you do any of that? Self-mastery. She's got none of that. Nothing. Her entire high school was simply outside in 
information transfer and confirmation through testing. That's what school is through high school. That's what school is in college, where you get anointed with a GPA. And then we graduate into the world of work, Mark, as you know, I've worked in the world of work, so have you. And you bump into people that are frankly, utterly clueless (laughs) about how they describe themselves to themselves and how they then introduce themselves to a new team. And then where can you rely on me the most? What do people turn to me most for? When am I at my best? What All those things that any new team member would want to know about you for my daughter and for most other people, they are completely without language to talk about it. They're without structure to explain it. They're without tools to define it other than the most rudimentary sort of personality assessments. And so as I look at the failure of leadership, what we've missed is the fundamental building block of a being a human is human variation. Biology loves variation. The quintessence of us as humans is the fact that we are not the same as our brother and we're not the same as our sister and we are utterly, completely, beautifully unique. And so we think about what a leader should be doing. We should be engaging with that individual as a unique human and then figuring out ways in which that uniqueness can get turned into contribution at, in the case of leading in the workplace, how do we turn it into contribution through our jobs, through what we're paid to do? We don't do that. We don't have the idea that people and the manifestation of the uniqueness of that person through contribution is the point. We don't say that's the point. In fact, we say, basically, people are a mechanism. They're a mechanism for value creation. And when they join us, the people that have applied to join us and don't get the job, we never speak to them again. We never even communicate with them again because they're useless, they're valueless until they join us. When they join us, we hold them up against a model, a preset model of competencies they're supposed to have. And then success is measured by how closely you match the model. And then when you leave us, there's no deep connection to you as having value as a human after you've left our company. When you've left our company, you're done, you're over. And so our whole orientation toward people at work is that they are a uniform cog in a bigger machine. And the success for the cog is how closely they can match the whole that fits the cog. And that's not just morally bankrupt. It's also practically super ineffective. We've basically said human uniqueness is a bug that we need to fix. And I'm not overstating this. You look at schools, you look at colleges, you look at work. Human uniqueness is a flaw and we try to eradicate it through standardized testing or through competency models at work, cascaded goals, 360 surveys. And so when I say that there's a systemic flaw, the systemic flaw is founded on the idea that your beautifully unique pattern of loves and loathes isn't just irrelevant to what we're doing at work. It's an impediment to what we're trying to do at work. That's the fundamental organizing principle of work. And it's a tragedy. How optimistic are you that we can fix it? Because that's really, I mean, that's the underlying theme here is reinventing how we lead and manage. And in order to accomplish that, you have to destroy a paradigm that basically lines out that, you know, you don't want the uniqueness in people. You don't want to deal with the messiness of people. You want people to comply. You give them paycheck, you give them some benefits and a little bit more if they do good work. And beyond that, we don't really want to know much about you. And that's sort of the historical model for managing people. And so the people that are actually in management roles have all grown up in that environment, all grown up with the traditional leadership mindset. And so can you convert them? And how optimistic are you that that can be accomplished? And what do you think is involved with accomplishing that? Well, I'm optimistic for two reasons. The reasons I'm optimistic are firstly, we're living in a very tight labor market right now, probably the tightest labor market that we're going to have in the last, I mean, the next 10 years. And so when the labor market is as tight as this, the power shifts to the employee. And when the power shifts to the employee, when companies are just treating you like some sort of replaceable cog in a big machine, then you can leave. And when you leave, you are hard to replace. You just can't find the people. So we have labor markets that are going to stay this tight for quite a long time, which means each human can vote and can say, listen, either you see me as a full human being, and I don't mean that you as a company have to reach into my soul and manifest my soul for me. We're not saying that. We're saying, 
I'm a unique human. I need to go to work for a place that actually bothers to see me. As an example, we can't continue to have hospitals, healthcare systems, where the nurse supervisor to nurse ratio is one to 60, and then wonder why the nurses keep burning out. And this is a pandemic. Why are nurses, despite having such a really strong sense of purpose, I mean, gosh, if everything was just about the why of your job, the nurses and teachers should be the most engaged, most passionate workers that we have. But actually, the data revealed that they're the least, they're the least engaged, least resilient professions. So, of course, the why of my work isn't enough. I've got to go to work in a place which actually bothers to see me and pay attention to me and figure out how the, at the 10-foot level, the 5-foot level, what am I doing every day and who am I doing it with and what nourishment I'm drawing from that. That's got to be the organizing principle. Now, of course, if your ratio is 1 to 60, you can't do that at all. You really are, as one of the 60 nurses, you're just a cog in a machine. <laughs> but if you've got labor markets as tight as they are now, then those nurses will leave, which they do which is why every single healthcare system right now has a massive amount of open headcount. They can't find the nurses. So the nurses are like a canary in the coal mine going, if you continue to treat us as though we aren't human and you build org structures that don't work for humans, we're gone, which they are. I think those are the floodgates that are going to open and companies are going to have to go, wait, 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 wait. What do you really want from us at work? And it won't be every company and it won't be uniform. But as somebody said, who said this? Was it Ray Bradbury? The future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Mm-hmm. That future of employees going, I need to be seen as a whole human being or I'm leaving, that's already happening. It's just not evenly distributed yet. So I'd like to believe that the labor markets themselves is a macro trend moving us in a micro way in the right direction. The other reason I'm super optimistic is that you can do this yourself. In fact, the only person that can really find that which you love is yourself. So we could help 11-year-olds do this. And they're smart enough to use the raw material of a regular week of their life at school to start anyway, start identifying some of the things that nourish them, some of the things that uniquely they love. We can start helping them now. And because it's not a huge lift, it's not expensive to do this, it's not some sort of technological impediment to doing this, you could just start now with every nine-year-old in the country. You could start with every 39-year-old in the country Mm -hmm. and say, you know, like if I was saying this to you, Mark, I'd go, you know, there's a mark in there. And the mark is very marky. It's a marky mark. It's like, it's, <laughs> well, I knew you were going there. Well, I couldn't. I was, just, yeah. I was saying it. I couldn't help myself. But it's like, and you've always known that. And you're different than your brother, your sister, your dad, your mom. You know that there was a mark in there. And so there's an appetite. We've all got an appetite to get to know ourselves. And of course, one of the crushing challenges for the 18 or 19-year-old is, is there really a me in there? Social media is so loud. The comparisons to others is so unending that it's sort of drowned out our own ability to hear ourselves or see ourselves. But the appetite's there, Mark. And so I think that's the other reason to be optimistic is we're not trying to force people to do something that's against their nature. We're actually trying to run down that path with them as quickly as they want to run down it to say, who are you? What is your nature? Let's just help you have a little geometry around that. Let's help you have a little ritual, language, routine, discipline around that. So I think that's a second reason to be optimistic. We want people to do more, actually, of what they want to do, actually. Do I need to have new skills in order to be this kind of a leader? Well, like, can I do it? Assure me that our listeners who have not really, not necessarily haven't ever done it, but let's just assume that in their workplace, that kind of behavior hasn't been encouraged. So they're rusty with it. Yes. Now, can I learn it? Is this something that I can do naturally? Oh, you can absolutely learn it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was to go, what is the language that we have to teach you? In geometry, you learn a whole new language and it helps you understand shapes and forms in a way that you didn't before. Same is true here. We need to teach you a language. I mean, shame on psychology. Shame on psychology. that we've The only language we've given you is a language around race, gender, age, sexual orientation. I mean, that's fine, by the way. Those differences exist and we should honor them. And in terms of Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, I mean, that your identity is pulled from each and every one of those, no question. But we have never given you a language to talk about your loves and what you lean into. And why do you specifically, even at nine years old, pay attention to this, not that? Why do you love this, not that? Why do you vanish into this activity, not that one? So the first thing you're going to have to learn is a new language. 
one of the first words in the language I put in the book, as you know, is the word weird, which is not an adjective. It's the noun of the Norse, ancient Norse idea that we've all got inside of us at birth, some sort of weird, some spirit, some daimon that is uniquely us. And putting growth mindset versus fixed mindset aside, you grow most when you are in touch with your weird and your life becomes an ongoing discovery and contribution through that weird, through that unique combination of loves and loves that you have. So to begin with, yeah, you'll have to learn a new language. You'll have to learn new skills as an individual to start identifying your weird, by the way. Your loves every day, those little things, those moments or situations or context that you love, every day life is trying to show them to you. So to start with, the first skill you got to learn is changing your mindset about your life. So often we think that our life is just something to be withstood. We wake up with a to-do list that flowed over from yesterday, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that we got to, quote unquote, get through. Well, if you flipped your life your relationship to your life a little bit, the first thing you do is start thinking, well, no, 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 life's actually trying to put on a show for me. Every day, life's trying to show me activities, moments, situations, context, little specific, highly specific things that for no good reason other than that I'm me, I love. Life's trying to say, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? It's trying to put on a show for you. So that's the first simplest skill to learn is wake up every day and go, what are those, I call them red threads, because I like to think mm -hmm. that everyday life's a fabric of many different threads, many different activities, moments, situations, and so on. And some of them are black, some brown, some white, some gray, some yellow. They lift you up a little, they drag you down a little, whatever. But some of them are red. Some of these activities every day are stuff that lifts you up. It's not necessarily a massive, intense lift, but it's, it's something where you find love in it. And if you can start to change the way you wake up every day and go, well, what are the red threads today? Now, we can dive in later about like how many red threads do you need in a day? But to start with, look at that. What are the red threads I'm going to intentionally try to find today? Which we, so many of us just don't do that. But if you did start to look, it's amazing what you'd find. Then, of course, we've got to learn what are the clues to these threads? What are these clues to nourishment for us? What are those things we find ourselves instinctively volunteering for? That's a good clue. Mm -hmm. What are those activities where time seems to speed up and we think we've done it for five minutes, but we look up, it's an hour. What's that? Where you vanish into it. As Mike Chekshamahai, the positive psychologist, he called it flow. Okay. Where time speeds up and we become one with the thing we're doing. What's that? Because that's not everything. It could be crocheting. It could be balancing the books. It could be resolving a complaint. It could be who knows what it is for you. But what are those things? Only you know them. A third clue would be those things where when you're done with them, it just felt like it clicked. It felt like when you're done with it, you're not drained. You're like lifted up. It felt like it was already there within you. You almost didn't need the steps to learn how to do it. Just woof, it just got you. Those are three clues right there that you could start to learn the skill of. And maybe you take a blank pad around with you for a week and maybe you draw a line down the middle of it and put loved it at the top of one column and loathed it at the top of the other column. And, and then maybe you just take that pad around with you for a week and look for the signs. And every time you see one, scribble it down in the loved it list. And anytime you see the opposite of one, you don't volunteer, you procrastinate and time doesn't fly by, it drags on. You scribble it in the loathed. And so, yeah, maybe you learn the skill of using the raw material of a week to begin to demystify who you really are. So there are skills like that, Mark, that we haven't taught anyone that are so eminently doable and we could all start tomorrow. Know thyself. That's fantastic. I'm really glad I asked that question. And I have a personal question for you. Yeah. You use the language that life is trying to put on a show for us. Mm. How do you inform yourself? Like, Where would you get an insight like that? Well, funnily enough, that was me talking to my fiance, Michelle, and her question, and she's... One of the chapters is about love and work in relationships. And, you know, this is a different conversation to dive into, but when you live in a relationship and you are unseen, I mean, love needs to be received. And on some level, that means that when you're expressing yourself, when you find something that you love and then you put it out into contribution, because we are relational creatures, we need to have somebody on the receiving end of that honor what you're showing them. Not that they should just pat you on the head for that. They see it and then they want you to express it bigger or better, or they're an amplification force for you. You want to be in a relationship like that, where the other person wants you to be bigger, the bigger version of your weird. And 
I was in a 20-year relationship. There was lots of solid and sound things about us both, but I had gone through that experience feeling unseen. And at some point, you start just being a passenger in your own life where you don't get out and walk around in the world. You're just a passenger because you become so disoriented. And then at some point, you get to go, well, either I'm going to die like this or I'm going to start trying to live my own life. And you make a change. And I was so fortunate after I did make that change, I, I did leave a 20-year marriage, which was its own form of trauma. But I've, I'm now with someone who we've got a, a relationship where we see one another. And it's, it has, you know, we argue and it's, it's not, it's not <laughs> one mother and that But I love talking about these ideas with her and her questions are different than the questions that I would ask and so her question was, we were talking about red threads and that every day I was talking about it, like every day life is hitting you. Every day life is coming upon you, thousands and thousands of interactions and situations and moments. And Michelle said, well, it's not really like that. It's not that it's coming at you. It's that it's trying to demystify you. Your life is trying to, it's like waving at you. Mm-hmm. And then she said, it's like, it's putting on a show. And so that's her conception that like life wakes up. If you imagine it this way, life wakes up and goes, how can I put on a show for Mark today so that he can learn a bit more about where he gets nourishment so that he can leave the mark that only he can leave. That's beautiful. And also true it is true uh, and right this is not fable this is absolutely true this is the way life works i'm in total yes. agreement with you and we know from actually we know biologically it's true we know that you have when you by the time you're 19 or so years old you got 100 trillion synaptic connections in your brain a pattern of synaptic connections no one else will ever have again and it leads you to have a certain chemical cocktail in your brain this sort of love cocktail of vasopressin oxytocin norepinephrine Anandamide, there's certain chemical cocktails in your brain happen when you're doing activities or get involved in something that you love. And your brain creates that cocktail in very different moments than mine does. We're both white males as it happens of a certain age, but what drives you and what lifts you up is really materially different than me, specifically different for me. And that's not spiritual. Oh, it could be spiritual. We don't need necessarily the spiritual explanation because we can see the incredibly complicated synaptic connection network in your brain. And it is materially different than mine. And that doesn't mean that you're static. It does mean, though, that when you grow more synaptic connections in your brain, when you open your mind up to learning and that chemical cocktail comes into your brain and opens you up, that you grow more synapses where you have the most pre-existing synapses. We know that too, which means your weird becomes more defined and hopefully less defensive and more contributive over time. But it doesn't become my weird. That's why the whole growth fixed mindset thing to me is such a false dichotomy. You can continue to grow throughout your life and life will keep showing you moments in which you find joy and love and nourishment, but you don't become me. You will always be the Markness of Mark. And life's trying to show you every day how to do that. And that's so flipping cool. Anyway, sorry, I'm rattling on. But that, ah. No, this is, it's actually fantastic. So thank you. So as you're describing your relationship with your fiance, congratulations, by the way, and you're talking about, I'm going to call it out because you wrote about it in the book and you just expressed it, that that wasn't there in your first relationship, not to the extent that you needed it. And now you're having it. And in this romantic relationship, you're having your personal weirdness, which I want to call out to the audience is a very positive thing. It's sometimes we hear weird and we think there's something wrong with us, but weirdness is our uniqueness. And so you now are in a relationship where your weirdness is being seen, it's being honored, it's being valued, and ultimately, to use the word of your book, it's loved. And so don't we want that in our relationship at work too? Like, not in a romantic way, but deep down, aren't we looking for all those same things from whomever we're working for? Completely. I mean, the oldest, and I wrote about this too in one of the sections of the book, but the oldest human art we've ever found is a 50,000-year-old mural on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia that's a drawing of a team. And we know it's a drawing of a team because it's a bunch of little people who are clearly chasing some animals, but each of the people that are drawn have got an animal characteristic given to them. One's got a nose of a crocodile, one's got the trunk of an elephant, one's got a face like a lion. And, and you can see that, and they call them therianthropes. Anthropologists do, I actually don't know why they call them therianthropes. But anyway, they're half animal, half human. And 
one of the interpretations of that is the dawning of religious belief because these things couldn't exist. And oh my word, look, we're drawing things that can't exist. I actually think it's a <laughs> it's kind of a, a more prosaic explanation, which is the person who drew it was like Brian over there is as wily as a crocodile, and Marjorie over here right. is, as, is as brave as a right. lion, right. and it's Gavin, over, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they went, look, they're all different. They're sitting around. They're all different. Why don't we come together in a team and we could do something together that we can never really do alone? And I'm not going to just have everyone be uniform on this team, you know, in the 50,000-year-old equivalent of someone saying, there's no I in team. Right. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> we're going to build the team precisely because each individual I is so unique and different. That's the point of a team is to make homes for weird people. That's what a team is. And so to your point, at work, from the dawning of human society, we have needed one another. It's the Ubuntu philosophy of not I think, therefore I am, which is very Western and Pascalian and, and very conceptual. It's I am because you are. I am because you are. It's the relational idea of I exist and am amplified through the eyes and the heart of another. And I need the other. I need on a team for my people to see where they can rely on me the most. As I was saying about my daughter a few questions ago, it's like, when she joins a team, the team wants to go, hey, where can we turn to you most? When are you feeling at your best? When does your mind work fastest? What do you always want us to call on you for? Like, those are things that any team member would want to turn to another team member and get an answer to. And that's, of course, what we should be moving towards. Because at work, if you're on a team where people seem to get you and see you, Almost all of our best team experiences are ones where we feel seen. And for a team leader, the most important thing to realize in terms of your responsibility as a team leader is people develop in response to you. You are a stimulus for their development. And the most powerful thing, all, and Jim Harder, Dr. Jim Harder at Gallup would confirm this to the nth degree. After 30 years of Jim and I and others doing rigorous research into human thriving at work, the biggest takeaway is that human thriving at work is a function, slightly tongue-in-cheek, of three things. Attention, attention, attention. Everything is attention, attention, attention. So for team leaders, your attention is a creative act. What you choose to pay attention to is what you'll find you'll get more of. And if you're looking at those unique people on the team and you're trying to figure out how they're wired, where they want you to lean into them, where they might find the opposite of that, actually, where they might be a deer in the headlights and where they might need your help. That's not a failing of theirs. That's a function of their uniqueness. Well, you, I'm sorry, team leader. Your job is to pay attention to that uniqueness. And then like that 50,000-year-old team leader did, figure out ways to put it together into a group that works better together than they could alone. So team leader attention to uniqueness is what creates great teams. And it also is what creates growth in each individual on that team. And if you don't want to do that, it's like one of the most powerful rituals that you can have as a team leader is a check-in. It's a one-on-one, 15-minute conversation about the near-term future, where the team leader simply goes, what did you love and loathe last week? And then what are your priorities this week? And how can I help? Just that, 15 minutes. We've tracked this in app so we can see the actual frequency of these happening. Those team leaders that do that 52 weeks out of the year, a check-in. It doesn't matter if it's in person or online or in app, doesn't matter. It's a check-in. And what that check-in is really doing is distributing attention frequently in a light-touch, future-focused way. One of the things that you're reminding me of is in your own book with Ashley Goodall, who I actually had on as a podcast guest. He was wonderful. And in your book, you said that if you want to know what your span of control should be, determine how many people you can talk to in any given week in the kind of check-in conversation that you're having. So if you have 20 people and you're only able to talk to 12 of them and in any given week, you have eight more people than you should have on your team. Is that kind of your conclusion for that reason? Absolutely. It's like span of control should be renamed span of attention. I love that. We shouldn't be talking about spans of control. It also means that if you're joining a new company and you're trying to consider whether or not this is like a love and work company, the first question, maybe not the first question you should ask, but the second question you should ask is how many direct reports does the CEO have in this company? That is a super powerful question. How many direct reports does the CEO have? If the number's more than 15, red flags. Because at the top of the organization, the CEO has decided that people don't need my attention. They're just good enough now that they don't need any attention at all. They're not really a team anyway. 
They're just a bunch of individuals on the, on the executive committee, one to 15. If that's what the CEO has arrived at in terms of his or her conclusions, then that's going to bleed down throughout the whole organization. Don't join a company where the CEO has more than 15 direct reports because that CEO doesn't understand how you help humans thrive at work. That's really damaging. And of course, the tight labor markets like that, you can vote with your feet. And that means that every single one of us who are applying for jobs, we can make this world change. Just with that one simple question about the number of direct reports that a CEO has. I love that. You mentioned Jim Harder, and I've done a lot of work with him. Actually, <laughs> I interview him. He gives me information, and I write articles about it. <laughs> but they've been really, really successful. And we just worked on one that just came out last 10 days. And so I'm knee-deep in the engagement piece. And I do want to ask you, because not just because of your having spent your formative years at Gallup and leaving a permanent mark there, you just mentioned engagement. And so Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, there's still a lot of people in business that think it's sort of like a nice to have and really isn't an indicator of anything. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the numbers haven't really substantially moved in the last 15 years. We really haven't heard much about it in the last couple of years during COVID. What would your advice be to people listening in here about engagement and its relevance to their leadership success? Well, engagement is a state of mind. Because it's a state, not a trait, it can move. And we know that if you move the state of engagement, and Jim can attest to this, and those people that want to dive into the data, I'm sure, Mark, you can point them to all sorts of different sources. We've got quite a lot of data at adpri.org, which is the institute that I run. The data show that if the state of engagement moves, other things move. Productivity moves. Customer satisfaction moves up. <laughs> Lost work days move down. Retention moves up. It's not a perfect one-to-one. The noisy world is out there. And of course, there's a lot of things that intervene between your state of mind of engagement and your actual behaviors. But we do know across many, many, many studies and much time and many different industries, if people's level of engagement moves up, all sorts of other good behavioral things move up too. So if you want to keep your people in a very tight labor market, then you got to understand what engagement is and what creates that state of mind. Our definition for me of what engagement is, is distinct from, say, something like resilience or something like inclusion, engagement is the proactive state of mind that enables you to contribute of your best and keep doing so. Someone else may have a different definition of engagement, but that's over the last 30 years, that's the definition that I've kept focused on. What is the proactive frame of mind that enables people to give of their best and keep doing so? And it includes, yes, a sense of mission. It includes recognition. It includes having a job that seems to fit you. It includes being surrounded by people who seem to care about you. Of course, it includes trust. So there are different aspects to that state of mind. But clearly, that state of mind is describable, it's measurable, and it's changeable over time. It can go down and it can go up. And when it goes up, good things happen. So can I challenge it just a little bit in terms of you've used the expression state of mind several times. And so our leaning here specifically with the podcast and with my work is that I believe that engagement is actually a decision made by the heart, that it's it's how we're made to feel, that feelings and emotions are giving us the data, if you will. They're telling us how we're experiencing work and that that leads to the state of mind decision as to whether or not I'm engaged or not. What do you think of that? Oh, I think that's right on, actually. State of heart, I love that. Now, I think you can ask questions of your state of heart that are interpreted by your mind. So you can Mm -hmm. ask people, do you clearly know what is expected of you at work? That's kind of a, that's part of engagement, expectations, clarity of expectations is part of engagement. You can't really be engaged if you're not focused, if you don't know what you're supposed to get done. So it has aspects of mindness to it, but I, Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. In the end, it becomes a state of heart. It's a feeling. It's a feeling of connection and commitment to your team, to your company, but ultimately to yourself and what it is that you're doing and showing at work. It's a super important thing. Any leader today who isn't curious about the level of engagement at the company, but also the variation in level of engagement team by team by team is a poor leader and shouldn't be in a leadership position. Completely agree with you. In fact, one of the things that I continue to urge people to do, which I know they don't do, is to measure not just engagement down to the level of the individual manager, but to manage 
specifically track turnover at the individual manager level? Because I think that's sort of the big indicator as to whether or not people are feeling really loved in their jobs, right? Yeah. Well, if you track anything inside of a company, this is going back to my sort of data roots, but if Mm. you track anything inside of a company, and no one really talks about this, which is always a surprise, but when you start tracking anything, whether it's lost work days, whether it's engagement, whether it's turnover, the thing that strikes you first is variation. You get range. You get range in something where you wouldn't have expected there to be range. Because when we read the business press, as you know, Mark, you have a lot of companies talking about their culture. And in fact, many companies today are saying we need to get people back into the office so that we can protect our culture, as though companies have a uniform culture. But when you ask people culture-like questions, like, do I believe in the mission of the company? Or do I trust senior leaders? Or do I feel like people care about me here? The answers to their questions vary much more inside a company than between companies. Companies don't have one culture. They have one talent brand, which is different, and that's what they put on the website, and that's what they extol their virtues of, and that's okay. We should do that as companies. But inside of a company, there's much more range, as you were saying, team by team by team by team by team. So really, the once-a-year employee survey is it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're reporting it to the board, maybe, or to XCOM. But all of the actions on the back of a survey, any survey, the actions we have to take basically boil down to the same prescription. Go talk to the team leaders. Every survey leads to that, whether it's to do with inclusion or recognition or compensation or clarity of expectation. You got to go talk to the team leaders because that's where everything happens or doesn't happen. And so what every senior leader should be thinking about is reducing the standard deviation and increasing the mean. I mean, to put it in statistical terms, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. increase the level of whatever you're trying to increase. So increase the level of engagement and reduce the range. You kind of want every team to be moving up and to the right. Not that every leader will lead in the same way. I'm not saying that, but we have the same outcomes. On every team, the goal will be to create an engaged team. On every team, the goal will be to reduce unnecessary, unwanted turnover. So any senior leader worth their salt will be fascinated by how do we create more teams like our best teams. If a company isn't interested in that, then all of the rest of the stuff that they're doing supposedly to try to engage their culture or whatever, it's all just words. It's pointless. And that I think that's in the end, by the way. That's why we haven't seen engagement move much because we didn't emphasize enough where it lives. As with almost everything else inside of a company, it lives on the team you're on. And all this other stuff about culture is noise. It's easier to write about because companies tend to have one stock price, but it doesn't reflect the reality of the working conditions that a particular person has inside that company, which varies hugely by which team you're on. Netflix doesn't have a culture. Disney doesn't have a culture. Facebook doesn't have a culture. Tesla doesn't have a culture. They all have stock prices. Inside Tesla, it varies hugely according to which particular team you're on inside Tesla. And when you leave Tesla, I used to say you leave managers. That's what we wrote about in First Break All the Rules. Mm-hmm. You don't leave your company, leave your manager. But really, to push on that, you don't leave your company. You leave your team. And because we haven't made that the central point of everything we teach leaders, well, often they miss the trees for the forest. <laughs> I love that. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. A quick reminder, Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming heartbeat round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash mark. So, Marcus, I'd like to take a break from our conversation for a moment and transition into a podcast tradition that we cleverly call the heartbeat round. So (laughs) with a goal of gaining an even greater glimpse into what influences you in your life and what makes you unique as a human and as a leader, your weirdness, if you will, I have a series of questions which all require quick, instinctive, and brief answers. So just to pin it down, I'll ask the question. Your job is to give me an answer in a heartbeat. Are you game? Okay. The pressure, the pressure, my heartbeat just sped up. I gave myself less time. <laughs> That's the goal that. is exactly pressure cooker. All right. What talented employees most need from their workplace? Attention. A cultural value every organization should have. The power of human nature is that each human's nature is unique. One book that profoundly changed your life. 
The Discoverers by Daniel Boston. That just came up, actually. A leadership principle managers must always remember. That their attention is a creative act. The trait that makes you personally weird. I seem to be more articulate when I'm talking to many, many people rather than just one. Oh, not take exception with that. A philosopher or thinker who gave you your greatest understanding of human behavior. I would have to go Professor Don Clifton, who is my first mentor and boss. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Craving for more control uh, and the illusion that you get more control as a leader. Your go-to activity when you're seeking rejuvenation. I go for long walks outside, uphill and down dale. We'll have to meet for one one day. <laughs> I love that. I'll take you my favorite place. Because you spotlighted Martin Luther King's leadership in your book, Nine Lines of Work, what's one trait of his that you most admire? Uh, the vividness of his hope for a better world. The vivid detail that he brought to that hope. Wow. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. One big lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Oh, that we all deserve to be seen. And the skill improvement you're working on right now. (laughs) (laughs) Giving shorter answers to that question. The 10 things are yours. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, What am I working on right now? I am working on uh, being, uh, I suppose, being clearer Concise? On who I am for people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Go on. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I am working on being more concise, but um, being clearer on who I am for people. I'm a lot of different things over the course of my career. Who are you for people is a very good question for me to grind on at the moment. That's fantastic. Thanks for that insight. And thank you for going through the heartbeat round with me. My pleasure. I want to make sure that I tackle the most important part of your book, which is the title. Coincidentally, several years ago, when I used the title Lead from the Heart, someone that I paid a lot of money to to advise me on building a brand and a platform for this message told me I would fucking fail if I ever continue to use the expression lead from the heart. And she was trying to help me. And But your book is called Love and Work. And so I want to ask, are we ready to discuss love when it comes to both our jobs and to leadership? Well, I don't know who you were paying that money to, um, <laughs> but I think she would have said, listen, if you want to get people to take this seriously, you need to go into the world with the right friends. And for me, (laughs) the right friends are people like you, but also people like Harvard. If Harvard Business School is taking love seriously and is asking people to take it seriously as well, then we're in interesting times. So as you can imagine, the world of, that I live in, I could have been published by any publisher I wanted. And frankly, the advances that HBR gives are way less than the advances, as you may know, from any other publisher. But they've got an ecosystem. They've got an ecosystem of credibility. So if HBR is coming out and going, whoa, 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 why is work loveless? What are all the things you want, CEO? Oh, you want creativity, innovation, ingenuity, resilience, collaboration. Do you want all those things? Do you think you can get any of them if you've built loveless work? Do you think you can get any of them if you're not really interested in what uniquely each person in your company loves to do? Not that they should love all that they do. There's no data on that at all. You don't do what you love. But there is a lot of data saying you need to find the love in what you do at least 20%. There's a lot of research that seems to suggest some sort of 20% number, 20% red threads in your day, every day, is enough nourishment for you to keep growing and learning and contributing over your entire life. But you get below 20%, 19, 18, 17, 16, and it's almost a linear increase in burnout risk. It's like, wow, you get below a threshold and it's like you can't breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. So for HBR to come out and go, hey, loveless, excellence is an oxymoron. If you want excellence and you can't talk about that which each person on your team loves or in your company loves, then you need to shut up about it because you don't want it. And of course, that leads (laughs) to trust. If love and trust are really linked, or you're going to put surveillance software on everyone's computers, are you? Okay, stop talking about excellence then because you don't deserve good people and they won't join you. Oh, you won't give people bathroom breaks in terms of that particular warehouse they're in or that driving schedule that they're on. Okay, Mm -hmm. then you don't trust people. There's no love without trust. And so you are driving love 
out of your workplace. So you will get more theft. You will get people having more accidents on the job and you'll have people sue you more because of the accidents. And then you won't know why. But all those negative outcomes are happening for you because you haven't taken love seriously, which is a choice of yours. And if you're mm -hmm. just trying to maximize a short-term return on investment, God bless you. But if you're the kind of leader who actually wants to build something through amplifying the uniqueness of each human, if you want to go beyond Stiglitz's idea of stakeholder capitalism and get into, it's not a combination of customers and employees and shareholders and community. It's one constituency, the employees. There is one integrating constituency that you have to serve. And if you serve them beautifully and honorably and with love, then all the other constituencies are served. And that constituency is employees. So I think, and this is definitely an I think, because I don't know, but I think if you get some people like Harvard, like you, like me, coming into this space and going, wait a minute, even if you're not doing this for the moral, spiritual reason that each human has worth, if you're just doing it because you want more creativity, productivity, and output, you got to pay attention to what each person loves and try to figure out the best way to maximize it. I think we're ready for that, Mark, because the data now over the last 30 years is really compelling. Loveless excellence doesn't exist. So stop talking about it as though it does. Well, you're the poster child for our podcast, Marcus. So, and uh, you just articulated that really, really well. I, I want you to know that some of the most extraordinary guests that I've ever had on this podcast are Harvard Business School professors. And, you know, it once was that MBA programs were just quants. You know, it was all about data, all about, mm. you know, your world, actually, but not the humanistic, you know, humane leadership that seems to be populating most of the top schools now, but particularly Harvard. And I do want to call out Felicia Sanusis, who, as the marketing and PR person for Harvard Business Review Press, is probably like the kindest, most thoughtful person that I interact with in scheduling guests and being introduced to work that I might want to consider for this podcast. So just to ring the bell for people that you're already calling out. Yeah, she's amazing, isn't she? She's um, She should be very Harvard kind of, but she isn't. She's completely, she's a humanist. She's a humanist. And when we are that way, all of us can pick up on it. And it's a lovely thing. Well, I notice it. Trust me, I notice it. The other reason why Harvard is interesting here is we do have to, and there's a whole chapter on this, as you know, we do have to take this into schools. I mean, your podcast is about leading with heart in the world of work. But if we don't, I suppose this is the only reason to be pessimistic, is can you actually get schools to think intelligently and rigorously about love? We've got loveless classrooms. We've got a whole loveless education ecosystem based upon the flawed, barren data of GPA and kids that are drugged up because we have systematically alienated them from themselves. And at 21, 22, 23, we start hiring them. They have no sense of self and we've done it to them. So I am not an educator. I don't know who's gonna take that mantle up the way that you have or Jim Harter has or I have or Felicia has or others. And there are many others mm -hmm. in the world of work. Who's gonna do it for the 14 year olds? Where's that? Because at the moment, we just barrage them with information transfer and testing, and we offer them no support until they get sick. And then we take them to the psychiatrist and we drug them up. I mean, that's our modus operandi. And then companies hire these broken people. And until we fix that, in not a squishy, soft and squishy sort of lovey, lovey, lovey way, but in a way that goes, nah, you need to have a really healthy relationship with that which you love and a way to be taught how to use life to demystify you, until we start doing that at 13, 14, and so on, then we're going to continue in the world of work to have poor team leaders going, oh my word, this brand new crop of recruits is, lacks any self-mastery at all, which puts a lot of burden on those poor team leaders. I totally agree with you. And that's the space that you're in right now with, with children experiencing all geometry and no love. And there are people <laughs> that I know that I've had discussions with that are focused on it. But I, I do think sort of coming full circle that these past two years really did change us all and redefining or clarifying what's most important. And I really hope that when we go back to work, and I don't mean return to offices specifically, I just mean 
where we treat this as an endemic and we're not wearing masks and we go back to that kind of life that we once knew, that the piece that is new is that teams are cohesive, managers are caring and supportive, and we honor the humanity and weirdness in people the way you've described it. I hope so too. And I, I believe because the tightness of the labor market, we have a really good shift. The analogy would be that we have dived down deep and companies, you can't just yank us back to the surface because our blood will literally boil. I mean, just like a diver, you'll get the bends. <laughs> we are changed people. And yes, we still need the money. We still need the job to pay the mortgage. And this isn't a luxury. Love isn't a luxury. Love isn't a necessity. And not just love from another person. Love for the activities that we fill our days with. Not every single activity, every single day, but we need frequent love of what we do in our lives. And that's how we thrive. And that applies to every single human. I do believe the pandemic has forced us to confront that. And I'm super hopeful that we as individuals, take a stand for it. And when we encounter companies that are saying to us, yeah, forget about all that, that we will vote with our feet and go, yeah, you don't deserve us. Sorry. We're going to go to places that take what we love seriously, not to be individualistic, not to be narcissistic, not to be self-involved, but so that we can contribute more. That's why it's you know love and work. <laughs> love is to inform your work and then work in the detail of what you do is gives you more detail about that which you love and off it flows in this beautiful infinity loop of energy flow from love to work to work to love and that's that's something that we should all take a stand for and i think you're right the pandemic has given many 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 people an opportunity for a reset marcus buckingham you're an extraordinary person and on behalf of my audience thank you so very very much this has just been a really really mind-bending, heart-bending experience for me, and I hope for people listening in. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. Best to you. Okay, mate. Thank you. As we close, I want to thank you all for introducing the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I've said this many times before, we will keep on producing this podcast as long as we're certain you want it. And right now, I think you know our audience reaches 156 countries around the world, and I'm certain it's because of you that that has happened. As always, I want to thank my great team for helping me make it happen. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Mm-hmm.